could give you part of the uh, confession of faith to start off with here, is if we truly believe what I'm just about to show you, and I hope you'll look at this and pay attention, it, it really begs a question. So if we believe that God continuously preserves and maintains the existence of every part of his creation, from the smallest to the greatest, according to his sovereign pleasure, and that God graciously guides and governs all events, including the free acts of men and their external circumstances, and directs all things to their appointed ends for his glory, then we have the question that should be popping into our minds, why should we pray? Is prayer to a sovereign God pointless? <laughs> that's, that's the way I've worded today's question. Is prayer to a sovereign God pointless? That is the question we will answer today, Lord willing. If the Bible teaches that God's providential control over all things, then why should we pray if the Bible teaches that? The short answer is, first of all, the first reason why every one of us ought to pray is because God commands us to pray. God commands us to pray. And in case you've missed this somehow in the Bible, let me give you some of these commands. Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. These are not options. These, in the Greek language, these are in the imperative. It doesn't give you an option. You have to do these. Okay, put your eyeballs on this one. Ephesians 6.18, praying in all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Philippians 4.6, here's another one for you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, I hope you're familiar with this one. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Now, obedience is the test of our belief on whether or not God actually is sovereign. Do we really believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that? Okay, let me make it personal. You know how that God can tell or anybody else can tell if you really believe that God is sovereign? The test is your obedience. Do you obey these commands and others. Obedience proves what we really believe, doesn't it? For example, let me give you an example in regards to a parent and a child. When a child obeys only those parental instructions that make sense to that child's mind, he is being neither obedient nor wise, but instead that child is being rebellious and foolish. A child might say something like this, you know, why should I brush my teeth, daddy? They're just going to get dirty anyway. If that child doesn't obey the parent, when the parent says, brush your teeth, the child is being rebellious and foolish. So my friends, we laugh at these kind of examples, but we do the exact same thing to God, who ought to be our Father, the one whom we must obey. If we are unwilling to submit to what does not make sense to us, guess what we have done? We have substituted ourselves for the sovereign one. That's exactly what we've done. We have started worshiping ourselves. We are bowing down to a false idol. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. 
Are you doing that? That's not an option, by the way. So the first reason we pray is that God says so. That's why we ought to pray, or one reason we ought to pray is because God says so. Excuse me. But sometimes we, we look at these simple, short, and obvious, clear answers and reasons, and we kind of dismiss them, don't we? Sometimes those short and obvious answers don't always satisfy us. So let me give you a few other reasons of why we ought to pray. If that's not sufficient for you, hopefully by the time we're done today, these other reasons will help us. Reason number two, prayer glorifies God for his providence. Prayer glorifies God for his providence. It's interesting, in one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons, he titled it Robinson Crusoe's Text. If you've read Robinson Crusoe, you may remember in that book, uh, that's exactly where Charles Spurgeon was getting this particular verse I'm about to mention, but, but in this particular sermon, Pastor Spurgeon highlights a verse that is mentioned in the book Robinson Crusoe. Now this verse is very interesting because it emphasizes the greatest purpose of all prayer, and that was the point of the sermon, by the way, highlighting the greatest purpose of all prayer. Look at this, Psalm 50, verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Do you understand the greatest purpose of all prayer? Do you see it in Psalm 50? Do you? I hope you do. Now here's the deal, my friends. You get the deliverance. That's, that's nice. But here's the next part. God must have the glory. That's the deal. Okay? You get the deliverance, but God must have the glory. That's the deal. So how is God glorified then? How is God glorified through our prayer? I mean, that seems a bit odd when you, when you really start meditating upon that. Well, listen to how John Piper answers the question. I think this is helpful. Quote, Prayer is the open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. And prayer is the turning away from ourselves to God in the confidence that he will provide the help we need. Prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God as wealthy. Prayer is the essential activity of waiting on God, acknowledging our helplessness and his power, calling upon him for help, seeking his counsel. So it is evident by prayer, or so it is evident why prayer is so often commanded by God. Prayer is the antidote for the disease of self confidence that opposes God's goal of getting glory by working for those who wait for him, end quote. We all have this disease of self-confidence. We all have that, as Piper says, and prayer is a helpful means to destroying our self-confidence. But how do we correlate prayer with the settled certainties of God's providential activity? Do you believe that, that, that God's providential activity is settled, that it is certain, that it is for sure? When God says something, he's going to do it? Do you really believe that? Well, if you do, then you might start asking the question, well, how does prayer correlate with God's divine providence? Well, let's look at a biblical example that should help us, I think, to understand this. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. It's the third book in your New Testament. Third book in your New Testament. So please 
Turn in your Bibles there, Luke chapter 1. Now, in the first chapter of Luke, I'll give you the context here, we see a godly couple who have prayed for children for years and years and years, but nothing has happened. They have not received the so-called answer to their prayer. They have not received any children. And as they grow too old to have children, they actually ceased praying for a child, which would be kind of natural, wouldn't it? I mean, you think about it. Once you're in, you know, your, your past menopause, you, you would, you'd probably think, okay, what's the point in me praying for a child, right? What is the point? And that's, that's exactly what they did. And hard as it may have been to accept, the Bible says it did not embitter them at all. Look at first, sorry, not first, but first chapter of Luke, verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. What a great response that is. Even though they had prayed for years and years and nothing had happened, it appeared that God was silent, they still did not grow weary, they didn't grow bitter or angry or depressed. They still loved God anyway. And so you ask, well, where does the connection to providence come in? Hold on, I'll get there. But to appreciate fully the irony of this particular account, you have to travel back uh, approximately 700 years before this time, before Zacharias and Elizabeth had their child. You say, why? Because the life and the ministry of their son, John the Baptist, was prophesied century, literally centuries in advance. Centuries in advance. Isaiah chapter 40 foretells the crucial preparatory ministry of Messiah's forerunner, who was John the Baptist. Now look at this. It doesn't say John the Baptist here. It doesn't say that, but I want you to notice what it says. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, notice quotation marks, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And that ends verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 40. Unless you miss the point here, John himself came to realize that Isaiah chapter 40 was talking about himself, and we know that, we, knew, we know John knew that, because based on what he said in John 1 verse 23, look at this, John 1 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That's John speaking there. He knew that that prophecy was referring to himself. He knew he was the fulfillment of that prophecy that was 700 years earlier. What's the point? What is the point? The life and ministry of John the Baptist were obviously settled facts. They were sealed by prophecy and secured by divine providence. Now, here is the remarkable part here, as we, as you, as we come back to Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel announces, there's this tie 
between the coming birth of this prophesied figure, John the Baptist, and it's tied directly to the prayers of John's father, Zacharias. And to see this, look at Luke 1, verse 13. One thirteen. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. Well, how long had it been since this now aged couple had said that particular prayer that the angel's talking about? I don't know. It could have been maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years, maybe 20 years. I don't know. Though the immediate answer from heaven for years and years was silence, as far as we know. Gabriel assured Zacharias here that his prayer had always been heard. Notice it says, it has always been heard. Now don't miss the larger point here, which is the connection between providence and prayer. The larger point is the connection between providence and prayer. Question for you, would John have been born providentially if Zacharias had not prayed? Well, logic, it would be very quick to answer, of course. It was prophesied, of course he would have been born, even if Zacharias had not prayed. Well, then, if you're thinking that way, if you're thinking logically, and it's reasonable to think that way, then, then I have another question for you. Why does the inspired scripture emphasize Zacharias' prayer? Answer is this, I think. Prayer is one of the providential means through which God accomplishes his settled purposes. Yes, they are settled, but prayer is one of those providential means, as we, we read about in the Confession of Faith. Then why? Why? Well, I've already suggested one reason, because it highlights God's glory. God receives glory from the prayer of the saints. But I think there's more to it than that, as there is for everything, for what God does. Remember the two reasons why God does everything in our lives? You'll, you'll see these come out here. Okay? Number one, for God's glory and your good. Okay? So you'll see that come out in prayer. It's the same with everything. It's the same answer. So reason number three is prayer adjusts us to God's purposes. Prayer adjusts us to God's purposes. Turn to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter 62. That's in your Old Testament. It's kind of sort of in the middle part there of your Bible. It's one of the major prophets. Isaiah 62. Now, as we look at this, it, it's going to furnish an intriguing study, but as we're, as we're about to see, I think it comes with some very startling results. It's an intriguing, an intriguing study with startling results. Now, we're going to look at some detail here in, in just a moment. Uh, some of you might get turned off by detail. I hope you don't do that. Uh, please, if you would, buckle up and stay with me. Try to, uh, if you... Try to pay attention if you would, because these details are important as we look at this. Now, I've given you on the screen, on PowerPoint here, I've given you the two, different, uh, two different Bible translations, and you'll notice they say two different things. We're going to look at Isaiah 62, verse 6. Some of you might be wondering why they say seemingly two different things, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But look at 62, verse 6. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. 
They should never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, of Yahweh, do not keep silent. Let's stop there for a moment. Let me show you why I've put the ESV up here. Many of you already know I love the ESV, and I think it's, it's a great translation. But let me, let me show you why I think it's done an excellent job in translation here. Because you notice the ESV says, You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. It's a bit different. And the reason they've done that is because the, the Hebrew verb there is the word remember. But it, it is actually the causative form of the word. It's a causative form. Here's what it simply means. It means cause to remember, put in remembrance, or to remind. You can find that in any, any Hebrew, uh, Hebrew book that explains the definitions of those words. Okay, That's where that came from. But the last phrase in that verse there means no rest to you, or no uh, uh, cessation to you. No rest to you. And then you'll see, you can see where the ESV translation comes from. They're coming directly from those Hebrew concordances. So literally then, Isaiah 62, verse 6 could read something like this. Here's another way to put it. You who remind the Lord, no rest to you. Now, I'm putting all this, uh, saying all these things in different ways for you. Hopefully, you'll understand in just a moment. that uh, Because I think the new KJV, there's not as clear as it could be. Another way you could put it is, you who remind the Lord, allow yourselves no rest. Are you starting to get the picture, I hope? Now look at verse 7. Look at verse 7, which says, And give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now the hymn there in verse 7 is a pronoun, but it refers back to the noun in verse 6, which is obviously Yahweh, the Lord. Now, does that seem a bit odd to you? I mean, it says to give God no rest. Why would the Bible say give God no rest? <laughs> I mean, what a remarkable mandate that is. And, and it's a peculiar request there. The ESV says until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. That's a peculiar request. So what is this? Well, literally, this is an exhortation to prayer. It's an exhortation to prayer. Now, to feel the full impact of this particular charge here in this verse and its relevance to the discussion of divine providence, you you have to really step back and look at the broader context in which this command is contained. Obviously, there's a pretext coming before this particular command. Obviously, you have chapters 60 and 61. I encourage you to go back today, this afternoon or this evening, and read chapter 60 and 61 and see how this this particular command is couched within this context. Well, I'm not going to take the whole time to read the whole context, but starting in chapter 60, the Lord has been detailing all of the abundance of wealth and the blessings that He is going to heap upon the nation of Israel. If you look at chapter 60, let's just look at two verses. Chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. Kind of give you an idea of the general context of where this command is coming from. 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. 
That's talking about Israel, God's chosen people. What is the result? Well, the result is that Israel will become the most important place of all nations. You read all the way going chapter 60 and 61, that's the point. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3, though. The Gentiles shall come to your light, that is, to Israel's light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. These are some amazing blessings to the nation of Israel. Unless you miss the point, God emphasizes over and over again in in chapter 60 and 61 some things. Let me give you some examples. I'll just highlight a few. God's going to gather the wealth of the nations into Israel. The kings and their armies will serve Jerusalem. The prized plants of other nations will bring more beauty to the land. Former enemies will bow down at Israel's feet. Their once desolate land will become the garden spot of the world. The best of the world's resources and riches will be Israel's. Israel will have the peace and the presence of their God. Those are just some things that I've pulled out of chapter 60 and 61. Actually, those are all coming from chapter 60. Now, why is all of this happening to Israel? Why? Well, first, it's important to note that none of this is actually happening to to Israel because Israel is superior or or, or because of Israel's righteousness or some, some inherent merit within the nation of Israel. That's not why this is happening, okay? Please understand that. Second, God sovereignly chose Israel as his special people. He, he purposely chose an insignificant, nomadic, little teeny nation, a, well, a person, and made a, a nation out of that and blessed that nation. So therefore... This awesome blessing is is a divine act of sovereign grace. It's a divine act of sovereign grace. That's the only reason this happens. And that's why Israel exists today. That's why they exist, even though there are are plenty of people who hate them and want to, to wipe them off the map. They exist because of God's sovereign grace. Well, what did the prophet Isaiah think about all this? Look at chapter 61. Chapter 61. Look what Isaiah thought about all this wonderful wealth and blessings from God. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments... And as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. That's awesome, isn't it? Do you understand the point of looking at the context? Never take a passage out of context. You can make the Bible say whatever you want when you do that. I'm reading the context so you understand where this command in chapter 62 is couched. And it's really couched after God lays out in in stunning detail here what he has promised to do for Israel. These are God's promises. And he issues a stunning command in chapter 62 to them to become co-laborers with God. And how do they do that? Through prayer to become a co-laborer with God through prayer, 
And, and what, are we, what's, what happens when you become a co-laborer with God in prayer? Well, you are bringing about what God has already promised to perform. In other words, this is an exhortation to pray without ceasing for the fulfillment of these prophecies and not to give God a moment's rest until he fulfills what he said he would do. Do you understand that? That's what's going on in chapter 62, verse 6. Don't give God a moment's rest until he fulfills what he's already promised he's going to do. Does that, are you scratching your head at this moment like I have been doing? <laughs> that seems a bit odd. Ugh, that's one of those, you come to the wall of mystery and you just bow down moments. So why does God do this? Well, there's at least three reasons, okay? There's at least three reasons. Number one, such prayer is a divinely determined means for affecting his purposes. We see that throughout Scripture. God uses prayer to affect his purposes. Question for you, though. Does God need us to remind him of something he has forgotten? Please, shake your head. Show me your way. Are you with me, class? Are you with me? Does God need us to remind him of something he has forgotten? Please, shake your head. No. No, he does not. Why? It's because of God's nature. Who is God? What's God's nature? He's what? Omniscient, right? God is all-knowing. In other words, because he's all-knowing, because he's omniscient, God can't forget anything. And why would God's people be exhorted here to remind an omniscient God to do anything? It's kind of strange, isn't it? Well, I look to others for help on these strange questions. Here's what Terence Thiessen says when he tries to explain the phenomenon he says this quote prayer is one of the means that god has determined to use in the accomplishment of his will in his eternal purpose god has included all of the events of human history but he does not act alone as though he were the only agent in the world he has given to his children the privilege of participating in his program for establishing his kingdom on earth one of the most significant means of our involvement is through petitionary prayer. You understand what petitionary prayer is, I hope. Where you give petitions to God, your requests to God. He goes on to say, although God could work with, without us, he delights to answer the prayers of his children and to be glorified by their thanksgiving when he does so. So that our prayers are a necessary, though not sufficient, cause of the ultimate outcome it's necessary but it's not ultimate is it it's not sufficient so why does god command us to pray for things that he has already promised to perform i mean there's a lot of things god's already promised to perform that we pray for all the time so why does god command us to do that well, here's the second reason such prayer is a divinely determined means for focusing our attention on God and his purposes. Read the model prayer, Matthew chapter 6. Read it sometimes. Study it. Meditate upon the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. You'll see heaps of things there that are God's will, that are God's purposes. For example, hallowed be thy name. That's God's will and God's purpose. God's going to accomplish that. So why does God tell us to pray in that manner? Because it's focusing our attention on God and his purposes. That's why Jesus told us to pray in that manner. Why does God care to involve us through prayer in his 
providential activities. Well, in short, here, here, here it is, okay? Here's what I think it is. It focuses our attention on what God wants to do. God cares about his glory. He wants us to focus on him, to meditate upon him and his work. Uh, again, Terence Thiessen said this, quote, In prayer, we do not seek to change God's mind. We seek to discern his will and to pray accordingly, believing that there are some things that God has determined to do in answer to prayer. End quote. So let me give you a third reason to, to meditate upon. Number three, such prayer is a divinely determined instrument for changing us. So again, we see God does everything for his glory and our good. So when God is changing us, that is for our good. God's goal, by the way, is not for us to be healthy. or God's goal is not convenience or financial independence or for you to have smooth circumstances in life or even being able to accomplish some worthy objectives for the cause of Christ. God's fundamental goal for all believers is not to protect us from harm or from suffering or affliction or trials or to make us comfortable. That is not God's primary function or goal. Well, you can sum up God's primary aim for your whole life in one word. In one word, it's change. That is God's primary function in your life, to change you. He doesn't want you to stay the same. God's ongoing purpose for every Christian is to make us like himself, as we see in Romans 8. Look at Romans 8 here, and we know, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what purpose? Why did God predestine you? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So this kind of change, as we see here, is what the Bible calls sanctification. That's sanctification. Now, how does this happen? How does sanctification, in other words, being set apart from sin unto God, how does that happen? It happens as we focus our prayerful attention on God's work and on discerning his will in this world and, and in our lives and in others' lives. As we are drawing our prayerful attention on God's goals, his goals are going to become our goals. His passions will become our passions. His values will become our values. Do you want that to happen in your life? My friends, I hope you do. I hope you're praying for that, that God's passions will become your passions. And when this happens, guess what? You are being changed into the likeness of Christ. Well, all of this talk, you might be sitting there thinking, okay, you know, that's great. You know, that's, that's the ideal. That's, you know, very theoretical. And that's just totally unattainable for me. What is the point? I hope you're not thinking that way. But if you are, let's look at a specific Bible example. I think you'll see that this is attainable. And it's not theoretical. And it is not ideal. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. Just a few books back in your Bible. Uh, keep going past Ezekiel. Eventually you come to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Anyway, in Daniel chapter 9, we see God's providence. And in the providence of God, we have a devout young man whose name is obviously Daniel. The book's named after him. Anyway, he was torn away from his family in the land of Israel. 
His homeland is Israel, and it was in, in the year 605 B.C., and it was the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar that did so. So he's taken back to Babylon. So the events in Daniel chapter 9 here, they're unfolding some 68 years after Daniel was exiled from his homeland of Israel. Now that's, that number 68 is significant. Keep that in your mind because there's another number going to come. You'll see the significance in just a moment. And anyway, Daniel's reading the prophet Jeremiah. He's reading the book of Jeremiah. That's, that's just a few books before here. And he discerned that the captivity of Judah in Babylon was to end after 70 years. You say, does Jeremiah say that? Yep, he does. Now look at what, look what uh, Daniel ch- uh, chapter 9 says. You'll see what Daniel finds out here in Daniel 9 verse 2. Daniel 9 verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the numbers of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Let's just stop there for a moment. Now, what effect did this have on Daniel's prayer life? Okay, I want you to see the connection between divine providence and prayer. There is a connection here. What effect did it have on Daniel's prayer life? Remember, Daniel was a man of prayer. He was a prayer warrior. Because if you read, I think it's in chapter 6, remember, despite the king's edict and law not to pray to another god, what did Daniel do? He continued praying as was his, his habit, as was his custom, right? Morning, lunchtime, evening, three times a day. Remember, he opened up his windows toward Jerusalem, prayed toward Jerusalem. The city that was destroyed, he still prayed toward it. That was Daniel's custom. He was a man of prayer. Daniel continued doing that. So Daniel could have, after reading Jeremiah, he could have just kind of sat back. He could have watched and waited in in probably excited anticipation over what God is surely going to do because God had already prophesied it. Daniel knew that God's not a liar. God keeps his promises. So Daniel could have just kind of sat back and said, cool, I can't wait till that comes. Two more years. Two more years. Is that what he did? Did Daniel do that? No. Look at verse 3. Look at the very next verse. I want you to see the effect of divine providence on his prayer life. Verse 3. Then I, that is Daniel, set my face toward the Lord God, and I just sat back and did nothing. Is that what it says in verse 3? No, it doesn't say that. He said that he made, he made requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Then he goes on. you got the huge prayer going all through chapter 9 there. So, what effect did it have on Daniel's prayer life? <laughs> it had a huge effect on his prayer life, didn't it? Instead of sitting back and doing nothing and just watching and waiting with excited anticipation over what God was going to do, instead, what did he do? It's something quite extraordinary, isn't it? What did Daniel do? He began confessing the sins of the nation and, and praying that God would graciously fulfill what he'd already promised he was going to do. I don't know about you, that, that, that just blows me away. That's a great example for us, by the way. That's an example we all ought to follow. Now listen to what Daniel read in Jeremiah, what he actually read in the prophet Jeremiah, okay? I want you to see what he read 
Now, the first part of the prophecy I'm, I'm about to show you is going to sound very sovereign-like. You can see God's sovereignty here quite clearly. Look at, here it is, Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 10 and 11. It says this, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Does that sound like like God reigns supreme over his creation? That God is going to accomplish his purposes? Absolutely, yes. And if you were Daniel, if you were in his sandals, and you're sitting in Babylon after seeing your homeland destroyed by the Babylonians, what would you do? If this was you, what would you do? Well, by the way, the passage doesn't end there, obviously. That's not the end of the chapter. That's not the end of the context. And woven into God's purpose in verse 10 and 11 is the necessity of human response. Notice I said the necessity of human response. Jeremiah makes it very clear. You see God's sovereignty and and the human necessity of response or responsibility within the same context. Don't miss this, my friends. Don't miss this. Look at verse, here it is, verses 12 through 14. God said this through the prophet Jeremiah. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Did did you see that there? Do you see the human response in verses 12 to 14 based upon God's sovereignty in verses 10 and 11? Now, why did Daniel pray after he studied this particular prophecy? Why? Well, it's the same similar reasons that we've just talked about. Let me kind of repeat them in a different way for you, okay? First of all, Daniel's prayerful response to the prophecy shows that he recognized the link between God's responsibility to perform his promises and man's responsibility to pray that God would do so. There is a link between God's responsibility and mankind's responsibility. There's a link. We see that here in this prophecy. And Daniel understood that. The prophecy said... Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. That's what it said. So Daniel did that. Number two, Daniel was habitually preoccupied with God's purposes and desires for Israel. Daniel had a passion for God's purposes. He had a passion for God's will. And he was praying for that passion. Now, do you remember what his habit was? As I already told you, three times a day, Daniel would open his windows and pray to the city that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Even though it was destroyed, he still did that three times a day. Daniel had a passion for what God had a passion for. And number three, Daniel's heart beat at one with God's heart. That's why he prayed this way. Daniel shared God's priorities. Daniel shared God's vision for Israel. And may I say, so should we. Any nation... Who, can, who should expect God's blessing will love the nation of Israel and will do everything they can to protect the nation of Israel. They are still God's chosen people. 
And you will see many nations, the Arab nations are in particular, the reason that they are so cursed by God is because they hate and despise and want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. God help New Zealand. Because there's many people in New Zealand who hate Israel as well. Well, have you ever presumed on God? Have you? I have. I'm sure you probably have too. Have you ever believed something when there was no facts to actually back it up? Or have you presumed upon God in, his, in believing his providence and his sovereignty and then not pray for something? That's also presumption. Well, a correct view of divine providence never makes one presumptuous when it comes to prayer. Never will it do that. In fact, a biblical doctrine of providence should actually invigorate us, should motivate us to pray. It shouldn't cause us to just sit back and do nothing. It should give us a deep-rooted confidence in the God of providence. Well, what kind of concerns most characterize your prayers? What kind of concerns most characterize your prayers? Would they be similar to the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6? Would they be similar to, to the prophet's prayers or, or the apostles' prayers? Now, please understand, uh, please understand I, I'm not trying to say that, that you should never pray for material needs or, or pray for your own afflictions or other people's afflictions or those kind of things. That's not what I'm saying. But those kind of concerns should not preoccupy our prayers. They shouldn't be what we always pray about and only pray about. Okay, if you take the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, for example, yes, there are material needs there. For example, daily bread. That's a material need. But the majority of the prayers in Matthew chapter 6 are, are in regards to God's larger purposes, that his name would be hallowed, for example. Well, if you want help in this area, which I certainly do, uh, may I suggest you study the prayers of the Apostle Paul. I've found them very, very helpful. Study the prayers of the Apostle Paul throughout the epistles. You'll find many of them. You'll find uh, what, pro- what Paul prays for, what he prays for, what is his preoccupation in his prayers, and I think you'll find them very helpful. You'll help, they'll be very motivating for you, very encouraging for you, very instructive in your own prayers. You'll find out what God's larger purposes are, and might be a help in your prayer. Number two, another helpful suggestion is discipline your spirit to pray with thought. Okay, Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 6. Don't just mindlessly give off repetitions. Okay, pray with thought. Maybe, maybe write down uh, some things. Use the scripture to help guide your thoughts. That's why one reason I'm suggesting Paul's prayers. As you're reading in your quiet time, use God's word to instruct your prayers. Uh, maybe you could use other people's prayers. I love, I love reading the Puritan prayers and devotionals. They're, they've been a, a tremendous blessing to me. But use those things as a filter, if you will. Uh, filter your requests through the sieve of God's larger purposes. And you say, well, what, what, what's that sieve? What's that filter? Well, obviously it's God's word. So my friends, may your understanding of God's providence enable you to rest in the reign of God. May May it enable you to just rest in God's sovereignty, in his providence. May divine providence motivate you to God-centered prayer. 
And may your prayer to the God of providence drive you deeper into his word so that you would know the mind of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reign supreme over all of your creation. We're thankful that you are a God who is in control. Nothing happens outside your control, outside your all-seeing gaze, your your all-knowing mind. We're thankful that you have all wisdom and all knowledge. We're thankful that you are a good God. That you are an all-powerful God, a faithful God, an all, a never-changing God. You remain the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are, we are so thankful that we see in the scriptures you've called us to pray. You have commanded us to pray. And that we can come to you in prayer 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we're thankful for our great high priest, our mediator, our go-between, our advocate who stands between us and you at your right hand. Because of that, we can come boldly before your throne of grace. May May we not neglect this tremendous privilege you've given to us. Those of us who believe in providence and your sovereignty, may we, not, may we not neglect prayer. Forgive us. I think it would be safe to say every one of us in this room, including myself, have neglected prayer. I, I have yet to meet somebody who ever says they pray enough. And Father, we, we recognize that we are sinners in this area. We don't do enough. We we, we don't pray without ceasing. We don't have a constant attitude of your presence and, and coming before you with, with things throughout the day, all throughout the day. But may, Father, you work that means of grace in us. We're thankful for it. It is so encouraging when we do use that means of grace. Thank you that we can pray to you and you hear us at all times. Make us people of prayer, people who have the same passions that you do. May we understand your larger purposes. May we have a passion for your glory, your interest in the cause of Christ. May we pray for those ends to be accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.